Metta is very useful for fulfilling one particular factor of the path, and that is right effort. Metta shouldn't be isolated off from the uh, the path loving kindness. Sometimes it's experienced as something you do on the side when you're not doing the serious work. But it is the serious work. It is, I wouldn't call it serious. It's the sincere work. Never be serious. Always be sincere. Metta, how it works is that one of the most critically important factors of the path, which is mentioned so many times by the Buddha, and it gets star billing, really. It's the essence of Buddhism, as opposed to most religious structures that are theistic, is right effort. There's an extraordinary emphasis on effort, and because we're not relying on external agency to do the work for us, Buddhism has developed a very impressive psychology, an examination of all the ways the mind works, which is not rivaled even to this day. There's nothing like it in Western psychology. Western psychology has a long history. It's called philosophy in the early days. Eventually it turns into psychology, but most of it has never addressed anything more than normal states or pathological states. It's not designed to bring you into a supernormal state. In uh, the West, supernormal conditions are left for mystical or spiritual traditions, and psychologists generally just don't know what they're talking about because psychologists like to be scientific. (laughs) They don't have any credibility if they get all spiritual on you. So they have to measure it, start with rats and (laughs) measure something and then apply it to humans, study with a secondary group, etc. So it's a very different process. But Buddhism has an incredibly rich psychology, which is all designed to produce, at the very least, normal well-being and hopes to produce supernormal conditions. So this is the the whole intent of it, and the Eightfold Path is a structure of psychology. We can get all kinds of tips and techniques along the way. Then one of them is just this emphasis on the profound use of universal goodwill. And it does not seem to have been around in the world before the Buddha. The idea of universal loving kindness, you cannot find a record of it before the Buddha. You can't find a record of it in the West either. It's always limited. Christianity, which is 500 years later, has a kind of a love thy neighbor as thyself, but it doesn't say love thy goat as thyself. That goat There's no problem with slaughtering that goat, actually. (laughs) So it's kind of restricted to uh, humans. It was a big, bold move to actually radiate goodwill to anybody outside your own tribe. I mean, that was radical in the West. But nothing like the encouragement that the Buddha talks about is to radiate loving-kindness without conditions for all beings. It had just been inconceivable. So that's an amazing 
doctrine in itself. The development of that as well, it just is a supernormal psychology. It's not our evolutionary pattern. But speaking of evolutionary patterns, something that I've been pondering lately and reading about lately is uh, there's a kind of an emphasis going around in the last uh, century. Darwin, I suppose, a lot of major wars and things have started because of misunderstandings about evolutionary biology. You know, it's the survival of the fittest and all of this kind of stuff that your genetic programming is all about. It's selfish. It's programmed to be selfish, etc. So because that's a very shallow understanding of things, and it, you'll still hear it talked about, but it's not true. And it's really interesting. You go back to... Uh, say, Socrates or somebody like that, and he talks about two kinds of people and two kinds of societies. And the two kinds of people are the superior person is what's called the just person, one whose faculties, emotional structures, are arranged so that they're just. They're not out just for themselves. And then there's the unjust person who does not have a strong sense of ethical restraint and does not appreciate the well-being and benefit of others, either anybody outside of their personal sense of self, like their personal family, etc., or outside of their personal social structure. And this is the earliest sort of idea of well-being and happiness that the unjust person cannot be happy that happiness, true happiness, is reserved only for the just person. And that justice is some sort of universal reflection. It is sort of built in. And I can, I can see that it is because there is something that works and resonates through the entire system. And it's uh, very expansive and produces a kind of an ecstatic quality of happiness, which is very steady So of those two people, the successful one will always be the just person. They may not win the business deal or something like this, but they're successful because they experience well-being and happiness in this very life. And then there's two types of societies, one which is composed of unjust people and then another society where it has a sense of appreciation of justice and holds it up as a high ideal. And... Socrates says that the just society will survive, will ultimately outlast the unjust society. And the unjust society will, although they're quite aggressive, they will have wars, they will have armies, they will encroach, they will try to manipulate through power and everything. They inevitably fail. And that's because they will soon stop cooperating with each other because the whole basis of their structure is unjust. So the individuals within them are unjust, and therefore they will turn on each other, and eventually they will decline. You had this uh, kind of experiment with Athens and Sparta, when Sparta was just nothing but a bunch of jock warriors, you know. Very aggressive, but who won in the end? Athens, who had a great appreciation of art, literature, philosophy, all of the kind of the beginnings of what we would call civilization. And notice that throughout history, eventually, these societies were very aggressive and unjust. And we have, they exalt this idea of selfishness or 
they celebrate people who get the most and all this kind of, they decline, they eventually decline because they will conflict with each other and it falls apart from within. Whereas just people cooperate, they can cooperate and they don't have just their own self-interest in mind, they have interest of others as well. And so in terms of survival and evolution and everything, it's a good tactic. If you have the cooperative genetic structure, it's a successful one. Nothing's programmed into us to be unjust or uncooperative. There are no genetic commands, etc. It's much more likely that that's why we respond to this suggestion for loving kindness, to break down barriers, to cooperate, to share, to be generous. And when we do, we experience something throughout our entire body. And that is tapping into our a very highly sophisticated survival mechanism which rewards you. That's your reward. You feel a well-being flowing through you. Darwin himself actually was a very gentle and altruistic person, and he also said that that is why certain societies succeed and others do not. It's a much more successful genetic strategy to cooperate people read that even scientists or evolutionary biologists they read selectively quite often and they somehow they miss that but it's the evolution is towards greater cooperation and civilization the buddha is more or less almost at the end of the evolutionary structure he's intuitively investigating his own structures he plays with his own mind he decides he's not going to think unwholesome thoughts and he's going to try generating exclusively wholesome emotions and wholesome thoughts. And he tries this with great endeavor. He's obviously a person who doesn't fool around. or When he decides to do something, he does it. And he said, you know, I did this. I tried this. And it worked. It was successful. And he said, I recommend it, you know, to just separate things into two heaps, wholesome unwholesome, stuff you regret, stuff that doesn't lead to good things, and make a vow, a profound determination not to allow those things to rise anymore, not to bring them into your mind, not to follow them. And reflect on what are the things that you delight in that you never regret. And, you know, make a list, <laughs> even if you have to write it down. <laughs> in the time of the Buddha, they didn't have pens and paper. They had to remember everything. They didn't have a writing culture. But you had to think it through in an orderly way. And you're going to have to memorize it too. And you have to make yourself some lists. And then you're going to have to say, okay, I don't go outside of that field. That is my pasture. That's where I'm safe. That's where I have no regrets. That is where the best feelings I've ever had are so that's where I'm going to stay. And all the operations of my mind, my thinking operations, they're going to be there. And the only thing I could possibly do better than that is to enjoy consciousness without thinking. It's even better than that. But as with most people, it's very difficult for them to shut down a thinking process altogether. And that would be fairly deep jhana, superior to even wholesome thoughts, but most of us are going to spend a great deal of our life in thoughts, and they can be wholesome. 
such a simple idea. Why don't you hear about this? Why didn't they tell you this in school? <laughs> because they didn't. <laughs> it didn't occur to them. You've inherited a whole educational system which has a whole mixed, complex, and quite chaotic psychology or views of the world are all mixed together so you get a pastiche of things and you don't know what to do with it in the end you just then you're out and you have to figure out on your own what to do if you didn't hear this from your parents or something you just kind of hear it anywhere so you can actually do this this an avocation of like making commitments to just stay in the zone that you really can do this and, and choose this. And it's, you're not fooling yourself in any way. There's nothing inauthentic about this. This is where you'll get more kind of, I, I have to say, BS psychology, you know. Just sheer wrong advice from people who should know better that somehow it not to address your difficulties, your emotions that are dark and all this kind of stuff is somehow to be oblivious to it or not to be a sincere inquirer or you're it somehow is going to get you in the end or it's going to bite you if you don't and it's not good advice it's not true it's stuff that was maybe brought into existence by lesser thinkers who never in their lives ever became happy you can't find a prominent psychologist in the history of psychology that was actually abnormally happy. <laughs> and none of them even pretended to be that way. Most of them are psychiatrists, and they're dealing with people who are really neurotic. And they themselves are mostly functional, but you do have quite a fair percentage, higher percentage of suicides with these, some of these psychiatrists affiliated with Freud and so forth. They're, they're not happy people. And so I don't, I just don't, the advice that they, what do, what do I, why am I going to them? Show me your success, please, before I go and listen to you. Why would I, why would I listen to you if you can't pull it off any better than the average guy? So this is why we're listening to the Buddha. He's unbrokenly happy. He's, he's well, he's complete. He's in a state of supernormal well-being in a continuous way. And he also has people around him who also have followed this and have attained this. Our sights are on higher things. Unconditional loving kindness is not known to psychology. And its benefits, it's, it's a stroke of genius. Why have any reservations? Even if other beings have faults, why have reservations? Since you deprive yourself of the benefits of loving kindness. And what about your own self? Why would you reserve goodwill for yourself since you have faults? And of course, why are your faults more obvious to you than other people's faults? It's because you can see into your own mind. You cannot see anybody else's mind. All you can see is their faces. And you cannot see your own face. But when I look at your face, I find it beautiful and full of humanity. It's almost transfixing for me to just sit down and talk with another person, like in the interviews and everything. I get a chance to just talk one-on-one -on -one with a person. I'm looking at their face, and I'm thinking, how amazing, complex, what a work of art that a human is. 
the subtleties of their faces and also the nuances of their voice, the tones and what they say and how they say it. So this incredible thing. You can see that other person, but you can't see your own face. And your own face is full of that humanity as well. It's the most complex thing in the universe. And it's written on your face. But unfortunately, all you do is in the morning, when you're not at your best, you get a glance. All you see is it in the mirror. And that's not your face. You go through your entire life and actually never see your own face. You see everybody else's, but you never get to see your face. You live and you die without a face. But you get to see straight into your mind. (laughs) And everybody else's mind is concealed from you, is absolutely opaque. All you can do is guess. Your faults, your less than noble thoughts and impulses are on display 24-7, whereas everybody else is not. They're just their faces that are on display. So you don't get to see your humanity, but you get to see, without any filters, you get to see your own failings. So this can cause some consternation around oneself. (laughs) So one has difficulty wholeheartedly appreciating and loving oneself. But it's only because you have some conditions attached. You're evaluating it. That's why it's not loving kindness. It's not self-acceptance either. It's not self-esteem or anything like that. Basically, when you think of yourself with loving kindness, don't think of anything specific about yourself. Think of yourself as a cat or something like that. Or, I don't know, even the moon. Just anything called me. But no particular aspect of yourself. Because you don't get any points one way or the other for being good or being bad. You don't lose any points for being bad. You don't get any for being good. Otherwise, it's not loving kindness. The idea of loving kindness is just a... It's like the rain. Buddha gives this beautiful simile. As the rain falls upon the earth without discrimination on plants, on evil people, on good people, on animals, without discrimination. So that is the loving kindness. It's not interested in who you are. It just drops. Sometimes I wonder if Shakespeare had somehow come across the Buddha because he has the same thing. You know, it's beautiful. The quality of mercy is not strained, but droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the earth below. It's so beautiful. And you see there's no tension in it. It just drops. That's mercy. Mercy is another form of love. It's love with forgiveness. Mercy is like you're showing mercy to who? Somebody that is your enemy. (laughs) It's loving kindness without reservation including your enemy, even if your enemy is yourself. You don't ask, how have I done today? Do I deserve a kiss on the forehead or not? You just give a big smacker (laughs) without undeserve it. If you deserve it, you don't get it. Sometimes I say at the end of my retreats that everybody who came to my retreat, you know, is above normal. This audience is above normal. They're smarter than the average bear. 
They're more talented than the average bear. They're better looking than the average bear. In spite of all that, I still love you. (laughs) And it's in spite of all that. It's not because of all that. And if you were the opposite, if you were lesser than that, in spite of all that, I would still love you as well. So it's in spite of it's in spite of who you are. It has nothing to do with who you are. So this is this is what unconditional means. It just doesn't have anything to do with who you are. And if it does, it's not what we're talking about. So metta is a beautiful thing. You get it right now. You don't have to get it next week. You don't have to wait for Amazon to deliver it. It's just there. It's instant. It's as soon as you allow yourself to have it. And that's the thing you've never been told in your life. It's free. Have it. Don't hesitate. Don't wait. Don't work through things. Just have it. And um, if you can just step forward and just take it. Have you seen those experiments where people stand on the sidewalk and try to give away $10 bills? And everybody just like walks around them and they're waiting for the catch. You know, the catch. <laughs> There's no catch. <laughs> We're just naturally suspicious of things like this. <laughs> but this is what the Buddha is saying. I mean, it's just like the whole religion is founded around this. He's just saying, loving kindness without reservation for yourself and all beings. Help yourself. There's no block to this. There's nothing holding you back from this. You do not have to be spiritually developed or anything like that for that. You just say, really? I'm allowed to do that? Go ahead. What that does is also fulfills the factor of right effort. Because instantly it cancels this and prevents the arising of negative, unwholesome emotions. So this is why, as long as loving kindness is there, there's no room for those things. You may have had your faults, and you may in the future have your faults when your loving kindness fails you. But while it's there, it's mutually exclusive from negative mental states. So our first two obligations in right effort is prevention of unwholesome mental states to prevent them from arising, the removal of them. And you won't have to do either one if you have loving kindness because there's no room for anything to arise and there's no need to remove anything because there's nothing there. So as long as you stay, it's a safe zone. You stay in there, you've already fulfilled the first half of right effort. And of course, what's the second half of right effort? To bring into existence wholesome mental states that are not yet arisen. So, voila, you've done it. Loving kindness is a wholesome mental state, emotional state. And then your the only other obligation which you have not yet done is to develop and deepen and sustain it. And when we read out the 11 benefits of loving kindness, before we even got to any of them, there was this rather excessive repetition (laughs) on the part of the Buddha of how you're going to practice, develop, make much of, (laughs) bring into existence. On and on. (laughs) He repeats himself ad nauseum that this is something you're going to really put so much time and effort into. It's not enough to just do this or think about it occasionally. It's something that you really put a lot into and you will get those benefits. And so that's the fourth part of right effort. That preamble to the sutta is almost exactly what is meant by fourth part of right effort, is to develop, cultivate, 
deepen, sustain, stir up energy for the maintenance and the deepening of these wholesome mental states. And this loving-kindness is a wholesome mental state. So you're left with the beautiful task of stepping freely into a condition of loving-kindness for yourself without asking what you've done lately, either bad or good, what you imagine yourself to be doing, either bad or good, or anybody else. So it's just the rain. You don't expect when you go out there that the rain is somehow not going to fall on you. It never happens that way. <laughs> so this is the same. You just step into the rain. It gets soaking wet. The rain of loving kindness is just totally indifferent to your whatever your judgments about yourself are and totally indifferent to the judgments about any other being. It just rains and soaks. You have to have these images in your mind. Otherwise, you won't understand it. And the images are very poetic, they're very beautiful, they're very artful. And the fact that it's rain and that it soaks you. Of course, it's a little, maybe less appealing if you're from Washington State or something like that. But in India, especially in the hot season, when the skies open and plunge upon the earth, it is a blessing. If you go to Thailand in the uh, Sankran, the... Uh, water festival. Everybody's throwing water at each other. It's like a big water fight all over the entire country. And that's how you bless each other in hot countries. It is very, very refreshing to have water thrown at you <laughs> in, the, in the hot season. Remember as a kid running through the sprinklers in the summer? <laughs> yes. Now the sprinkler never objected to any of you, <laughs> no matter whether you were small or big or whatever. You know, you just get to run through it. So it's just returning to that state of like, there's no charge for this. The sprinkler's free, run through it. It doesn't have to be all that sophisticated. In fact, that's the problem. The psychology has made us too sophisticated. We got all these, we think we have to do a doctorate in, in psychology to be happy. It's really simple. Simple people at the time of the Buddha who were not literate at all, of course, had not heard anything about Freud <laughs> or anything did this. They did this after a very short time. And they learned that they can do it as much as... Nobody, nobody's going to come and say, you've used up your bandwidth here. You know, like, you cannot... You're using megabytes every day of loving kindness. You cannot do that. No helicopters will descend and say, you're not allowed to just stay in loving kindness, you know. You have to be angry and worried sometimes, you know. <laughs> it's not true. <laughs> The loving-kindness also is very practical. It's a great fuel. You know, people worry about, well, you know, I have to get things done. And big ideas and big projects sometimes require hostility and anger and the expression of those things. And that's how things get done, isn't it? No. Yeah, actually, it is. But those fuels of anger burn your engine out. You will pay. You will get things done. If you're running on ambition or anger, you will get things done, but your engine will suffer. You are pumping toxins into your own system there. It's a state of illness. People think, well, I have a goal, and I'm willing to put up with the suffering, the anger, and the ambition that's driving me. I have to do that. But they're wrong. It's just a bad fuel, that's all. 
There are other fuels that get things done, and the greatest works of art and the greatest poems and the greatest music and everything have not been written in anger. The greatest buildings have not been designed in anger. They've been designed in dreamy, artistic states of love, because that's the only where you're going to ever access the sublime. You're going to have to get out of your lesser human qualities in order to catch a glimpse of beauty, something that you would express in music or art or in design or in poetry or even in science. I was reading Einstein about how he came up with his relativity ideas, and he said it was not through particularly through linear science or any kind of experimentation. He was purely theoretical. He lived in this small place in Bern, Switzerland, and and had virtually no scientific equipment at all. But he did have a violin, which he liked to play. And um, he said, I did it through intuition and music. That's how I got those ideas. That's how I worked it out. Intuition, I emptied my mind. He liked to be alone. He didn't even like his wife talking to him. There was no TVs or anything like that. He's in this quiet little town. He's spending a lot of time gazing out windows. And then when he wasn't doing that, he was playing his violin. And so that's how he came up with relativity. (laughs) It's an act of beauty of, of creation. These are enormous fuels for getting things done. They're incredibly creative. Loving kindness is very practical, creative, and it doesn't burn your engine out. It does the opposite. It coats your engine with protective chemicals. (laughs) Your tension in your stomach, the headache, the ailments, and so forth can melt away. There's a huge element of relaxed trust in loving kindness. And you can also access parts of your mind that you would You can't access any other way. So prepare yourself for new ideas and new ways of thinking and maybe just new ideas about your whole life, like saying, you know, I care about myself. Why am I doing this? Why am I putting myself in harm's way here? Why am I living this way? This is the voice of wisdom. This is the advisor that you want Normally, we have this advisor within us that is churning away at 2 o'clock in the morning with a very deficient IQ at that time as well. You are very stupid at that time (laughs) and full of fear. (laughs) That's your advisor, this very nervous, stupid person, (laughs) sleep-deprived. You don't want that person giving you advice. You want somebody who is lucid and energetic, has a little glow to their cheeks and is at the peak of their IQ. And that is you in loving kindness after 9 a.m. Yeah, Yeah. have coffee as well. So if you want to know what to do with your life, how to live, where to go and how to live, then you're going to have to ask the best of you. And that best of you is that mind of loving kindness. That's where the best advice will come from.